everybody. Welcome back to Fabulous. Hi, friends. I'm Shannon Payne. I'm Elizabeth Taylor. This is a good one. This is a fun one. Brian, our editor and the love of Shannon's life, truly recently revealed to us that sometimes he doesn't know why we pick the things to go together that we do. (laughs) But in our minds, because we are truly one person broken into two, it all made sense. It makes absolute sense. It makes absolute sense. So obviously today we decided we needed to go with uh, Indiana Jones. And Winnie the Pooh. Because obviously... That makes sense. Maybe we'll make it a game. If you know why we picked them to go together, um, commented on our post about this this week. And if you get it right, we will. Uh, we'll send you something cool. Yeah. Like five bucks to Starbucks or something really awesome. Oh, yeah, like I do that. have a gift card for that. So, yes, I've yeah. got you covered. If you guess it, that's yours. Right. Plus, I can just text it to you so I don't even have to, like, make new friends. Easy. <laughs> so if you can figure out why we think Indiana Jones and Winnie the Pooh go together, five dollars for you. And you're going to feel really good about yourself. In, in Utah, that's a whole Starbucks. In mm-hmm. New York, that's half a Starbucks. <laughs> this so could sorry work out if that's for you. where you live. But if you live here, it's like, it's Starbucks plus. Yeah. Free drink, extra whip. Yeah. It'll be great. That's perfect. <laughs> and now I just have to try not to say it. I know because it away. I will probably do it at some point. <laughs> but if you can pick up on the subtle hints, more power to you. It'll be great. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> He's right though. We're a... Uh, what a pair what a pair <laughs> what a what a pair i i often get kind of shocked that we do finish whole sentences because uh-huh. i feel like sometimes we say the beginning and then you go uh-huh and i just feel like well then i could stop now i can stop it's fine you, you know what i'm talking about you know the rest <laughs> <laughs> which normally in regular conversation that works out for everyone right. else that's maybe not the best way right. to go it would be even worse than how they can't see our weird hand gestures which i was just doing and i'm doing currently <laughs> Would you guys like to listen to half a podcast? I wouldn't do that to you. Maybe we'll do a fun episode and see if you can fill in the blanks. (laughs) Mad mad limit. Yeah. Make it your own episode. That sounds fun for everybody, right? Yeah. No. (laughs) More work involved. Absolutely. Sounds like the worst. (laughs) Are you ready to tell us about Indiana Jones? I think I'm ready to tell you guys about Indiana Jones. (laughs) I'm excited. I started out and it was, where do you go with it? Yeah. Do you, do you ever feel that way when we get into the research? Like you just don't know where to go with it. Yeah. So I just started. Um. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. So I'm going to start with all of you from the very beginning. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, the beginning we all remember. Yes, we do. <laughs> For so many of us, the field of archaeology hit the epitome of cool when Harrison Ford hit the big screen as Indiana Jones, the badass professor explorer that turned everything about finding the past into the greatest adventure to ever exist. <laughs> it's and just made me believe that there's treasure in all caves. Everywhere. <laughs> like, how have I not found it already? Seems weird that we haven't stumbled across it. That's insanity. <laughs> Sheer insanity. <laughs> Right from the very start, Indiana Jones had us on the edge of our seats, running through the 1936 jungles of South America, barely escaping with life intact, but just missing out on taking a coveted golden idol with him. Back in Chicago, we listen intently as the army tells Indiana that they need his help in keeping an artifact of truly biblical proportions safe from the Nazis, the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Nazis definitely knew all about it and were working their way towards getting it and fucking over the world. It's true. It's true. And I love that the Nazis really were into weird mystical shit. They super were. So this was too, like, And it's like 100% plausible. Yeah. Of course, this is real. There's definitely an an adventure-seeking professor. Yeah. It's gotta be true. It's gotta be true. (laughs) We follow Indy all over the world to Nepal to get the staff of Ra, ultimately finding out that his old mentor and best person to help him is dead. But that's okay because Indy made sure that previous love interest, daughter of this friend, is in tow and ready to go. We run off with them and we find the Well of Souls that is rumored to home the Ark. We find snakes with Indy. We run away from boulders. We chase after Nazis. We're tied to a pole with Nazis completely fucking up everything and maybe blowing up the world in essence we had fun and it was amazing and it was like nothing we had ever seen before Mm -hmm. 
It made a generation think that being an archaeology professor was absolutely what we wanted to be when we grew up. Or or a special effects person in yeah. movies because their faces fully melted off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking insane. It was shocking. Which we'll talk about, like, why that why that is such a big deal going forward. Because it does become kind oh, of a big wow. deal just in the movie situation as a whole. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so freaking cool. It's ridiculous. The Indiana Jones opening scenes are very good. They're As incredible. I scroll through them in my mind. Right? They are excellent they scenes. They are so good. They are so good. So for us, this is this big new thing, right? Like for you and me, like this isn't really something we've seen before. This is new. This is novel. But... George Lucas and Steven Spielberg drew some cinematic genius from people that came before them. Of course. As you do, mm -hmm. of course. So first I'm going to talk about some movie inspirations that they drew from, kind of built off of. And then from there, we're going to go delve into some potential real life inspirations. All right. Okay. In 1943... A fairly low-budget movie called China came out with Alan Ladd starring as the devilishly roguish and highly devious David Jones. Jones. Sound familiar? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just the name that Indiana Jones draws some truly unquestionable parallels. Indy's whole outfit practically screams David Jones. The fedora is the same. Indy and David's jackets are definitely related. At least cousins. <laughs> Minimum. <laughs> the same can be said for the 1954 Charlton Heston movie, Secret of the Incas. I don't know that I've heard of that, but I think it's the name of a board game. I think it is, too. It probably is. The direct inspiration of this movie to Raiders is confirmed by a lot of the crew that actually worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh. Including the costume designer. They drew a lot of parallels even from this movie, but it's not just the costume this time. Raiders can basically be termed a remake of this movie, practically shot for shot. Oh, that's very interesting. Right? Supposedly the whole crew watched Secret of the Incas over and over and over again to get inspiration for things like storylines, set pieces, and character development. I don't know what I think about that. Is I, that regular? Or I is that like mean? I feel like that happens. I feel like that happens quite a bit. I mean, we see remakes of things all the time. Sure. But I would hope if they really did draw that inspiration to that level, and I'd have to go watch the movie. I didn't get the chance to watch it this week. Did they credit things like that? Especially if they say it out loud after. Right. That's what got, that's what happened to Olivia Rodrigo. Yes. She was like, I was so inspired by this person, this person, this person. And they immediately sued her. And now they're on all of her songs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. In the end, there's no denying that Lucas and Spielberg had made something good and even great. They'd built off of what they'd seen before and made it into something that still feels new today and that we still look fondly back on. And like we say a lot, there's nothing that's completely original. Right. It just doesn't happen. So I think it's just the logistics of how you go about it that makes it good or bad. And I'm sure at this point with how much money it's made, somebody would have jumped on it and said, yeah, no. Excuse me, the Inca... Movie people with like some cash. I get it. Right. I'm, a, I'm assuming credit was given where credit was due. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. So we've talked about some of the cinematic inspirations. There were a bunch. There were a ton. So we can't talk about all of them. So now we're going to talk about some real life inspirations for Indiana Jones. Ooh. So there are actually a surprising number of archaeologists in history that could have been the one. Nuh-uh. Yeah. So we had in our mind, right, one, which I'm definitely talking about. There were, there were so many. Archaeology really it was that cool? It apparently was that cool. Oh, my goodness. Right? That makes me so <laughs> I know. That's really exciting. Right? Oh, my gosh. I, I love it. So we're going to talk about three of them today because two of them with a third... This was a really interesting caveat. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the first one, and the one that I'm sure those of you listening, if you were thinking of somebody, this is the one you're thinking of. We're going to talk about Percy Fawcett. 
It's, it sounds like a wizard name. It does. <laughs> so does his full name. Percival Harrison Fawcett. <laughs> Harrison? Oh, There's no. so many parallels. It was meant to it be. It was meant to be. Miss Cleo predicted this. She knew. Oh, my Truly gosh. knew. Oh, my goodness. He's a wizard for sure. Oh, he has 100%. received his Hogwarts letter. Absolutely. Tell me he's a Hufflepuff. Is he going to be dopey? No, he is. I I think he's Gryffindor with a hint of Slytherin. Oh, most of the sexiest people are. That's true. Makes sense. That's true. All right. So Percival was born in 1867. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. He was born to a father who was rich and not great at living a life that included any modicum of caution or careful thinking. Okay. He drank away what amounted to two families worth of fortunes, gambla- gambling and womanizing all along the way. I don't know how you make time for such things. I don't either. <laughs> I d- Feels like a lot of work. It super does. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just because we have two jobs right now and I can't think of adding a third. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> so Percy's dad dies of alcoholism at age 44, leaving behind a family that had to learn how to pick up the pieces. Mm. Which they did. Percy's older brothers graduated from college with his oldest brother becoming quite the mountain climber, science fiction writer, and theosophist. So studies all things spiritual or occult. All of those things are only half a job. Truly. Unless you get super good at them. So maybe he added up to one and a half. Can you get sponsored climbing? Oh, you definitely can. I'll Google that later. I'll tell you how much climbers make or something. I want to know and don't want to know all at the same time. Right. It's not like I'm going to get in on that business. Absolutely not. It's up so high. It's so scary. <laughs> I just. I'd be like the maybe the third person down. I just want to. certainly wouldn't go first. I just want to repel. I don't want to climb. That is fun. Hike and then jump down. Yeah. Easy. I like that part a lot. Yes. I'm super on board for that. Mm-hmm. So his older brother definitely has a big impact on Percy and his future going forward. At this point, however, Percy joins the British Royal Artillery as a lieutenant in 1866. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to take us back and have a little reminder. At this point in world history, Britain was everywhere. But we're kind of not pirates anymore. No. We're more muskety. Yeah. But still in everyone else's business. It's still super in everybody else's business. This is around the time when we steal your cool stuff and tell the queen it was a present. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and by nice, I mean it sarcastically. That's a very sarcastic nice. It's bad. It's actually pretty mean. Yes. Pretty, pretty, pretty mean. It was actually said at this point that Britain was spread so far and wide that the sun never actually truly set on the British Empire. They were everywhere. Oof, duh. Yeah. Exploration and exploitation of all lands conquered became the name of the game at this point, and Percy was part of this in a very big way. A biographer named David Grand describes Percy as one of the last Victorian explorers, saying Fawcett ventured into uncharted realms with little more than a machete, a compass, and an almost divine sense of purpose. Oh. Yeah. It's hard because it's half heroic and half like, you're an asshole. Which is why I'm saying he's Gryffindor and Slytherin. Yes. Wow. Yes. It's difficult to know how to feel, honestly. Truly. Because I want to be on the team of whoever has a cool satchel. Right. But also, it's not your house. No. Don't so put other people's stuff in your, your purse. Keep your grubby hands off. Yeah. Yes. It's complicated. Truly. I guess it's not that complicated. It's not that I, complicated. I want it but to be cool, and it's actually douchey, and that's the fact. It can be cool if you just left shit alone. <laughs> Go look at it and yeah, come back. and then come back. That would have been fine. <laughs> Perchance, illustrate a picture. There we go. <laughs> Did you bring a camera with you? Not at this point, no. Uh, <laughs> Now that I think of it. Now that I think about it, not quite. Lithographs? Yeah. Per, per chance? I think that could be fine. I don't actually know the I year have, for lithographs. I don't either. <laughs> well, the world turns over into a new century and Fawcett embarks on a new mission. In 1907, Britain's Royal Geographical Society gets charged with the mission of acting as an unbiased third party in a dispute between Brazil, per- Peru, and Bolivia. See, the actual borders of these countries were not super clear, and fights about the whole thing just kept coming up. 
as it does. Sure. Because in case you have never been to the border of a thing, it's not like a line on the ground. No, super not. It's all... And if you don't have a handy dandy river, what's a person to do? Exactly. They send in Percy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. He had proven himself skilled in the art of the map. So society dispatched him down to the Amazon to survey the, and map the area. And he was stoked as hell to do it. He was all for this. There's big bugs there. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do it, but more power to you, bud. And the trip was just the adventure that he hoped it would be. He climbed mountains. He trekked through rainforests. He was attacked by local tribes because those tribes were already used to being treated cruelly by the Europeans at this point. So makes sense. Makes sense. At the end of this, Percy came back, updated maps successfully in tow and with grand stories of adventure to tell. That's quite a skill to go to a place and draw a a legitimate map about it that other people can use. That is impressive. That is wildly impressive. Plus, I imagine it's more than just Spanish and Portuguese. Oh, yeah. Like there's so many different tribal languages in in the Amazon. Absolutely. Very fascinating. Yeah. And snakes. And snakes. (laughs) P.S. Very big snakes. Very, very big snakes. I think that's where Anaconda is filmed, right? Isn't that supposed I to be in the Amazon? So. Fuck. The scary. Absolutely not. After all of this, Percy keeps making trips back to the Amazon as the year goes by, and he gets to know many of the tribes in his travels. Not to say that he was great to all of them. <laughs> Racism sneaks out in his comments on many of the tribes, calling them, quote, docile, miserable, or repulsive cannibals. Oh, Percy. But surprise, he became super interested in one particular tribe that had lighter skin. And he had a thought. This particular tribe might just be descendants of the lost city of Atlantis. Which many believed had sunk really close to the South American continent. Sure. Sure. I'm interested. Yeah, absolutely. You got some Atlantis? Give it up. Exactly. And Percy starts drawing on his older brother's beliefs at this point of, like, the occult and just, like, religious theology and, like... And sci-fi novels. Pretty much. Yeah. Yes. And all of this starts leading him to believe that there was a lost civilization and it was called Zed. And it's in the middle of the rainforest in Brazil and he's going to find it. I mean... I don't know. I, you're probably not going to talk about this. But there's like <laughs> there's these really cool pictures from above that they're using to they use them um, in Europe to find like where stuff is buried under the ground. Mm-hmm. And if they do it over the jungle, like there are full cities in the middle of the Amazon. Right. So like, I don't know what it looked like then. Maybe no more idea. of it was visible. Right. It could have been incredible. It could have. It absolutely could have been. War breaks out for a while and halts Percy's search for a bit, but Percy definitely doesn't give up. By 1925, he had gathered together a crew that included his son and his best friend and set off, backed by money from American investors. I mean, I'd go on that trip. I 100% would go. (laughs) There's no question. (laughs) They travel and trek and eventually find themselves in Dead Horse Camp. At this point, things begin to get a bit treacherous. And Percy sends back some guides that had come along with them, saying it might be a while before they can communicate again, so don't worry. It's fine. Oh, no. May 29th, 1925 was the last time that the group was ever heard from. Oh, no. Yeah. There are a lot of stories about what might have happened to them. Some say that they found Zed and just stayed there. Makes sense. Right? I can see that. Maybe he formed his own tribe in the middle of the rainforest and started his own new family. Ooh. In 1951, the Brazilian government even tried to say that they had found his bones, but that was eventually disproven. So ultimately, we just don't know. And there's a lot of space. Yeah. It could be anywhere or nowhere. Absolutely. Oh, wow. I guess he didn't predict that end. He did not. So wizard or no, he's maybe it is his wizard powers. Maybe he didn't get back to the port key on time. That could be it. That could be it. So that's Percy. That's one potential inspiration for Mr. Indiana Jones. (laughs) Feels logical. I can see that. 
I can see the connection. We named the dog Indiana. That's true. How many times am I going to be compelled? It feels like Indiana Tourette's. Oh my You're God. saying stuff, and I'm just like, I'm gonna say another line from Indiana Jones. Oh it's, my God! It's physically painful. It's bring him on. It's so annoying. Bring him on. <laughs> I'm so bothered by myself right now. No. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Are you ready to hear about another person who may or may not have inspired Indiana Jones? Yes. His name is Hiram Bingham III. Is he from here? Yeah. He, he's got to be from, from is Oh, he? he's not from Utah here. He's where, from the United States here. Where do other people get Hirams? Mm, that's a good question. I'm curious about that. Not that curious, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Mildly curious, not curious enough to really do the homework on this one. I don't think I can do that. We've talked about him before. Have we? Hiram Bingham. I'm trying to think of when, probably when we went to Peru. Do you think? Yeah, 100% I think so, and you'll find out why. Okay. Okay, so Hiram was born in Hawaii in 1875 while his parents were working as missionaries in the area. Growing up there provided tons of opportunities to explore, climb, hike, and gain just an overall excitement for exploration and discovery. And for better or for worse, he ran with those inclinations. I feel like better or for worse is going to be the story I say for all of this. (laughs) By the time we reach 1911, Hiram is going to be the explorer ultimately credited with the discovery of Machu Picchu. Was it in potatoes? Maybe. Maybe we talked about him in potatoes. I have no idea. We talked about him. We sometime. talked about him. That's the only way that I can think of. Were you of. guys there? Do you remember? If you were, tell us. Maybe we're crazy. <laughs> Anyways, Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu. It's very high. Yeah. So I don't think it would occur to me to think, oh, I bet there's a city on the tippy top of that. Absolutely not. And then there is. And then there, there super is. That's kind of amazing. So it didn't come out of nowhere for him. Like, it wasn't just like, I think this is it and I'm going to go. According to some sources, he actually might have gotten beat out years before he was even born. In 1867, it's entirely possible that German explorer Augusto Burns came across the site on one of his own expeditions. So whether he was the first or not, it's hard to say, but Hiram is credited with taking the information he had and figuring it out and running with it. Okay. Starting off pretty early in his life, Hiram had the means to basically do whatever the fuck he wanted. So he married into the Tiffany fortune. Oh, must be nice. Must be really nice. (laughs) Well, he was getting a PhD in South American history from Yale. Again, Seth Taylor, you could have been a dentist. Just Mm, saying. I could have told people that I was a dentist's wife. That could have happened. He's so smart. Yeah. <laughs> he could have done it if he wanted to. It was pretty. I was like, one time there's a girl I follow on Instagram mm-hmm. who her whole job is to just to like redo her cute house and show it to people. Oh my God. Because her husband's a dentist. Yeah. And I was like, Seth, what if you were a dentist? And he's like, oh, you know, when I was in college, I thought about being a dentist. And I was like, shut oh your my God. <laughs> Seth Taylor. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing good things now. He has a cool job. He has a really cool job. It's still pretty awesome. It's true. I have a job also. Mm. That's really the only downside. That's (laughs) truly, (laughs) truly is the downside. He had last week off. Oh, gosh. I hate it when I explain like what real time is on the podcast because then you guys think that we're not real. Mm, True. Yeah. For reasons that don't matter because time isn't real. Seth was home while I was working and I kept thinking to myself, one of these days when I, when I pay you to be my kept husband, this is going to be so nice. It's going to be amazing. He's just about, it was handy. He was around. Yeah. He'd come in and say hi to me sometimes. Yeah. I liked it. That sounds nice. It was really nice. Brian also had time off at home, but I didn't get to hang out with him. So Mm. he probably thought it was nice to have the house to himself. (laughs) (laughs) There's that. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, All right. He's got Tiffany money. He's got Tiffany money. And he runs really far with that money. And in 18, not 18, 1906, he decided to enhance his Latin American knowledge with real life experience, which I think is super cool. So he travels to the old Spanish trade route that ran from Spain throughout the Andes into Peru and the area that we're all familiar with as, you know, Machu Picchu now. Mm hmm. Five years later, he's taking an entire crew from Yale with the sole objective of finding the lost city of the Incas. 
It was lost. It was lost. People knew it was there. There, we knew that there was an Incan right civilization because there. the Quechua people are still in are still in their Cusco, but, like but, right by there. They're neighbors yeah. to where they sh- used to be. But the rest of us seem to have forgotten where the exact location of it was. We knew it was we there. ran out of breath before we got up that high. Basically, <laughs> it's so high, you guys. Basically, <laughs> it's just. The Spaniards didn't really document things super well when they were off conquering. Well, and I don't think it, maybe in some cases, cartography was a goal. Right. But it but wasn't the main part no, of the party. It, it was conquering. It was more of a pillage, yeah, right? pretty much. We all know, we all, we all know where it was now. It's outside of Cusco, Peru, but Hiram didn't know. So we had to follow some clues provided to him. So he climbed, he hiked some pretty treacherous paths. And on July 24th, 1911, the crew found it. The incredibly well-preserved stone city of Machu Picchu. In 1912, he headed the site's excavation efforts. Here's where we come across the problematic areas of his Machu Picchu tenure. There had to be some. Yeah. See, he took a page out of the Queen's book and decided it was great and totally moral to take artifacts found at the site back to Yale, essentially claiming them as his own. And Peru was understandably not on the same page at all. No. Finders keepers? Yeah. (laughs) Not a great Not a great, no. Yale and Peru battled for years. Almost a century. It wasn't until 2010 that an agreement was reached that, yes, the artifacts did in fact belong to Peru. And it took an additional two years to return all the artifacts. I'm having such a weird deja vu moment mm-hmm. that I can't remember when we talked about this. <laughs> we super did. I want to figure out like what the thing was. It was um it was something. Mm, the queen had died. Oh, maybe it was. She about needed to give her stuff back to somebody. Maybe that was what it was. Or the people's. I can't remember which episode that was. Guys, I forget. I I don't remember every detail of what we talk about. Unfortunately. But I'll never admit it in real life. No. I think it was one of our Jimmy Buffet episodes. That's Or our phrases. I don't know. It was one of them. So they eventually negotiated to give it back. Yes. You know, it could have been just when I was reading about the museums we wanted to visit while we were there. That could have been it. That could have been it. I don't know. Very. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. Pretty cool. So option number two. Again, there were so many. This is not an inspiration, but I thought it was a really interesting coincidence. So really quick, I want to talk about Eric M. Myers and Carol Lyons Myers. That's kind of cool sounding. Yeah. Biblical scholars to the core and teachers of religious studies at Duke University. These two have a very distinct claim to fame that may have been an indie adjacent situation. So these two were explorers entering into dangerous situations to find artifacts of archaeological or biblical significance sometimes followed by protests for digging at what were considered by many as holy sites, which is understandable as well. In 1981, the same year as Ark of the Covenant. That's not very long ago. Mm -hmm. They made a pretty significant discovery. While exploring an ancient site in Israel, they uncovered what was to be the oldest known remnant of an Ark of the Covenant. No way! Yeah! Ultimately dating between 250 and 360 AD, over 1,000 years older than any remnant previously found. That's nuts. This happened when the movie came out. So wild. That makes it feel unreal. It does make it feel unreal. But I haven't found anything that that disproved it. I only kept finding things that said, yeah, this super happened. Wow. It's, It's really wild. So basically, the movie comes out and these two ride along with the fame. To like a synchronicity? Is that what it's called? Yeah. That's that's wild. Interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready to find out why this face-melting situation was of such significance? I mean, other than being amazing, I'd mm. love to know. And nobody liked that guy. Mm-mm. At the end, you're pretty much like, please melt his face please off. Please melt his face off. So it was satisfactory. Yes. I would say. Uh, well, I'm going to say so. It it started the conversation, but in our next section, Indy goes PG-13. Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to talk about it because Indiana Jones plays a huge, huge part into how 
the PG-13 rating even came to be. Really? Yes. It's wild. I have no Han idea about Solo this. Because Solo bulked the fuck up mm-hmm. and got all sweaty got looking. All sweaty and burly mm. and hairy chested. Yeah. That did happen. That did happen. <laughs> Didn't know I had that in me. Exactly. Same. He it, that is interesting to think about. It's almost like when uh, when baseball players are like, I don't do any steroids, but you look at their pictures and their head is li- literally larger now. You can't tell me. You like, don't. how did he get bigger? Right? Was it just age? Did he like gain a bit of weight? Maybe because Han Solo seems a little. He's not scrawny. No, he doesn't seem as bulky, right. like as barrel chested as Indiana Jones. Right? You know? Yeah. Maybe he just grew up a bit. That's possible. I don't know. You know, honestly, he doesn't tell me those kinds of things. We don't have that sort of relationship. Other people do, and it's not fair. (laughs) It's really not fair. Mm. I wonder what they put on him to make him look glistening and sweaty all the time. Maybe he was just hot. I don't know. Maybe he was just hot. What's the one? Is that Raiders where he they do the thing and and the guys with all the swords and he just shoots him with his gun? I think so. If that's the case, he was sick and he wasn't supposed to do that, but he didn't feel good. So instead Mm. of doing the sword scene, he just pulled out his pretend gun and shot him. I love that. So he might have been sweaty because he was sick. (laughs) That could be it. (laughs) It's all coming together now. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. We're going to jump back really quick to 1968. The MPAA rating system started that year, and it was a pretty different scene than what we see today. Films were rated with heavy, heavy influence from what was called the Hayes Code. Because at this point in time, the Supreme Court had decided that free speech didn't really extend to the world of filmmaking. So considerations had to be made for things like profanity and nudity, which we're used to. But also, talking bad about the church, clergy, or just any other blasphemous actions. Boo. Within this rating system, the following ratings were identified. Hold on. Yes. For my dad, I must say. Mm. Not because, like, boo, religion is bad. Right. Boo, if you want to force your opinions and beliefs on that, other people. That is the problem. Because I don't think that that is at the heart of religion anyway. No. So I don't mean boo on faith. 100%. Okay. Okay. So the rating system goes as follows. G, which we're used to. There was a whole amalgamation of what was M, PG, or GP. But basically this was just, you might want some parental guidance, but it's totally fine for kids. Okay. Then we skip straight to R. Oh. And then we have X. For for nudies. For nudies. Fully nudies. But now R has some nudie. Yes. But not like certain kinds. Not certain kinds of nudie. No no wieners, I think. I think that is a rule. That that could be a fun episode. <laughs> we just got an idea. <laughs> How does that work? Oh, I got, I came on this and I was like, do I talk about this? Because this could be an interesting, like, how did these things come about? Mm-hmm. I couldn't I feel help like myself. I have, like, um, surrounding knowledge of the thing. Like, it affected this, but I right? don't really know the thing. Yeah. So that could be interesting to it learn. Could be. I, I'm if it's it. not, I won't tell you. But if it is, I'll tell you. Beautiful. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it seems obvious now, but then... There was just this gap that wasn't being recognized between what was good for younger children versus what was more appropriate for an adult audience. The first Indiana Jones film had to navigate these parameters, too. Again, face melting is not necessarily kid appropriate all the time. It's fairly graphic. It is fairly graphic. It was tough. And films were filing appeals all the time because obviously once you rate a movie R, that limits the audience that you can reach. It's true. And not just like by rules, like certain people aren't allowed to buy the tickets. Right. But also if it's rated R, people are like, like not in our house, not for people, that, not if your parents aren't there. It's a big limiting thing. It is a big limiting thing. Enter the year 1984. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom comes out and shit gets dark. My mom would cover the screen with a pillow for that one part. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Seth knows the words and he'll like put his hand on your chest and try to pull your heart out. And because my mom covered it up, it's really scary to me. (laughs) The first time we did it, I was like, don't pull out my heart. No. Oh my God. (laughs) The things we grow up with that haunt us for the rest of our lives. My God. Oh, goodness. So they had calmed down a bit from their original vision, but still. 
we saw we saw the faces melting and heads exploding in raiders. And by Temple of Doom, we were seeing human sacrifice and children dying and brains and people eating snakes. Yeah. We were seeing some shit. It was a lot. It was intense. It was brutal for a PG rating. And parents were shocked and understandably pretty pissed as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and even the press at this point are having a fucking field day. People magazine actually went so far as to call it a cinematic form of child abuse. Oh, well. That's a little much, but. It's a little dramatic. It's a little dramatic. But the filmmakers just knew it wasn't R-rated. It just wasn't. No, because it's a little silly. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. And especially when you start, like, they, they had cut it down on purpose because they knew. First Indiana Jones, they'd made a shit ton of toys for the kids. Yeah. They had this community following that they Kids had to were stick excited. With. Kids were super stoked about it. And they were the Star Wars people. Exactly. Steven's, Steven Spielberg ended up being super adamant to the end that the movie did not need an R rating. And that was when a compromise was born that would change the world of movie ratings as we know it. Steven went to the president of the Motion Pictures Association and had a little talk. And this is what he remembers saying. <laughs> I remember calling Jack Valenti and suggesting to him that we need a rating between R and PG because so many films were following into a netherworld, you know, of unfairness. Unfair that certain kids were exposed to Jaws, but also unfair that certain films were restricted, that kids who are 13, 14, or 15 should be allowed to see. Mm -hmm. I suggested, let's call it PG-13 or PG-14, depending on how you want to design the slide rule. And Jack came back to me and said, We've determined that PG-13 would be the right age for that temperature of movie. So I've always been very proud that I had something to do with that rating. Oh, gee, thanks. Yeah. It would have severely limited anything I was allowed to see Same, growing up. Like, though. I would have lost out on a lot of mm -hmm. movies. Yes. It changed the world for me. As it was, watching a bunch of rated R movies in my 30s, I was like, I don't even understand pop culture mm -mm. until now. Like, I didn't I didn't know what anyone was talking about before this. Right. <laughs> and I thought I did. Yes. But after I watched a bunch of, like, even, like, you watch The Godfather for the first time, and you're like, oh. Now I get that's it. That's what everybody's talking oh about. Oh, my God. Because it's so iconic. It's, yeah. it's people's regular language, and I didn't speak it. No, not at all. I have no reference for it. So thank goodness for PG-13. Or we yeah. would have been even more lost. Right? Good gravy. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I don't want to imagine. I don't know if we could have watched The Goosebumps. My parents already had a hard time with that show. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it changes so much. Mm -hmm. So while Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is still the questionable rating of PG... It did have a major impact on the movies that came after it. The first movie to get the infamous PG-13 rating, do you know what it is? Mm -mm. Red Dawn. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know that the remake of that has um, Chris Hemsworth in it. It does. I remember the name on my first try. Oh, my God. And I, I remember Patrick Swayze was in the original. Yes. I know. We didn't even have to say, you know, Dirty Dancing Guy and Thor. Right. <laughs> we did it. Crushing it. Absolutely crushing really? it. Red Dawn. Such an angsty feel film that I it know. feels really nice to be the first PG-13 movie. I think it makes sense. It's appropriate, it's right? It's so teenager. Yeah. That's nice. I like it. It, it feels... felt like a really good fit. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was happy when I Googled that and saw that that was the movie. Acknowledging also that that movie in both of its versions is a... Uh, uh, mm. Now I don't know the words for things. <laughs> we knew names. That's, we can't ask What's for more than that. What's the word when when you don't when you like your country the very best and you don't care about anybody else's country? Oh, um, 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 Fuck. um <laughs> I keep wanting to say ethnocentrism, but I don't think that's the right kind one. Of. It's that, but different. It's it's like the number one fault of America. Mm -hmm. Truly. Mm. We, we shouldn't have bragged so much about knowing a name. I went too far. This feels like instant karma. Other people are Googling this. Nationalism! That's the word! Jesus Christ! Those two films exhibit a great deal of nationalism. Oh, 100%. And, and perhaps uh, we need to remember to have balanced perspectives as we watch it. Truly. Because war is real. Yes. Also, 
other people are human beings. Yes. That's all. 100%. PG-13. Yeah, that was exciting. <sighs> I had no idea that I, that was what I was going to get into. And that was like my favorite part of this week, which is just, um. but that's the blockbuster yeah. in me. So That I, feels uh, like great trivia to know. Yeah. And no one will ever ask us. Never. Oh, I hate that. And Brian has trivia I'll... every week, and he's not going to ask this one. I always want some trivia question to be, what are the three things that the voice says in Field of Dreams? <laughs> because I know them. Oh, my God. And I feel like that would be so epic. It would. Nobody's ever asked me. Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, Brian, can you uh, give some suggestions to the company? I just want one. Just give me one. I, I will never know the answer to any other question. <laughs> this will be the only one. <laughs> I want Kevin Costner to know I was listening. Yeah. <laughs> because he will know. He will absolutely know. And Simba's dad's in that movie. Yeah. Like, I just want to be impressive. That's all I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's it. Someday. Yep. Truly. Okay. So, next thing that I found that I kind of had to touch on, I came across a Smithsonian article that touches on the myths of archaeology as a whole that kind of come after we watch Indiana Jones. Sure. So. By myth, she doesn't mean pornos. No. But I'm sure there were a lot of those, too. I'm sure there were a ton. So I'm only going to talk about three that she covered. She covered a bunch. Cool. But I'm just going to go through three. So the first one that they talk about is after Indiana Jones, basically it was safe to say that we think of archaeologists as daring white men wearing adventure clothes and being smooth as hell. And they don't have any of the top three or four buttons None on their None of them. Blouses. It's impossible to button those up. No. Mm. Truly impossible. Is that actually true? For the 30s when the movie was set, yeah, it probably was. It was a sure. pretty whitewashed world where we were taking over everybody else and women were nothing. And it was just a situation. Yeah. And yeah. They probably had excellent educations and old, old family money. Truly. Things that other people didn't have an opportunity. I mean, we talked about them before already. It was people with money. It was yeah, and audacity. It was privileged people. That's what they had in their satchels. Yeah, just cash and audacity. Just, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What's in your purse? Just, just my overbearing desire to prove my worth and money and, and cash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some dollar dollar bills. Some dollar dollar bills. So for the thirties, yes, this was true. But the world of archaeology today is changing into a more diverse and representative field, which is huge and important, and I think it's really cool. Yeah. I really, really love that. And one of my favorite parts in Jurassic Park is that uh, the girl archaeologist seems to, like, be smarter than the boy one. I love that. Even though Alan is intelligent. Alan is intelligent. I just feel like she sticks her hand in that giant pile of poop, and I'm like, she knows stuff. Absolutely. She's got a big freaking brain. She's got this figured out. Love it. All right. So this diversity is actually outlined in a really, really succinct way by someone named Alexandria Jones, and she's the founder of an organization called... Jones. Jones. This is nuts. Why? Right? It feels cool. It's... It's insanity. Even though it's one of the most common names ever. Still, Truly, it still, feels cool. It does feel cool. So she's the founder of an organization called Archaeology in the Community. And she had this to say. She said, archaeology needs a polyvocal, intersectional view coming from the community in order to do the science of studying that community's culture. If archaeologists do not work towards welcoming a more diverse body of archaeological practitioners, they will miss out on advances in the field. That's just facts. That is facts. She can probably cite those facts. Guarantee she can. She's a smarty pants. She's a smarty pants. It's ridiculous. All right. Myth number two. Archaeology efforts always take you to exotic places. No, I don't think so. Not, again, the 30s maybe. Maybe you were going to Because everything was exotic. Right. But today, definitely not. You're honestly more likely to see archaeologists working more closely to home, researching places and histories of people who came before them in the place that they're in. Lately, uh, they're researching the stuff that they see because we're running out of water mm-hmm. and it's uncovering our old things. Yes, it is. Just bad. It's not a good thing. <laughs> not loving it. But it's probably handy if their families were tired of them traveling very often. Which I actually read a bunch about that where they're like, <laughs> it's really nice to just be able to do this cool shit from home. Yeah. <laughs> I get to go home to my family every night, nice. a warm bed, a nice meal. <laughs> no malaria. Absolutely. It's pretty great. That sounds like a win. 
So it just becomes important to be able to study like people that you share this history with. The more you have a connection with a community, the more you'll want all of that community to be represented. Yes. So I found another quote. I have a few quotes for all of this. So I found a quote from Stacy Camp, and she works with the Michigan State University. Ordinary people in the past are often footnotes in historical records. Some people's histories have been intentionally erased or neglected because they were members of groups who were historically marginalized or discriminated against, which is super true. Yeah. So it just becomes important to like people who have an investment in their community and the people who came before them are more likely to want to, hopefully more likely to want to invest in all of that community, in all of their past. They maybe don't always think they were a famous person in a past life. Right. Just regular people. Just regular people. Gosh, regular people are so cool. They are. They're they're most of us. They, we're, we're pretty regular. We are truly pretty regular. And I like our stories. I love our stories. Yeah. I love all of them. Last one I'm going to talk about. Everything found in the field of archaeology belongs in a museum. <laughs> this belongs in a museum. This belongs in a museum. And that's just not true. I love museums. I think museums are great. And in certain applications and in if they handle themselves ethically i think museums are wonderful and especially lovely. in in aspects where they're they're free to people like kids of a certain age or passes for school programs right? like they're they're so accessible to a lot of people yes. and that's very cool i think that's amazing but there have to be some big rules about other people's shit 100% because we touched on this a bit earlier like we have absolutely no business taking away things and artifacts and, and just things of significance from people and saying, we can take better care of this than you. It's so yucky. It is super yucky. Like, you can say that out loud and not feel like shit about yourself. Right. Plus, now it's not accessible. Except to these people. You took it away from them and they can't just fly to your house to see their own shit. Right. Plus, flying's the worst. It truly is. And it's a bajillion dollars. Right. It's expensive as shit. Well, and here's the thing. Even if you can afford to go to these other places, to these museums, many of the items that we take away from communities to care for and display for the greater education of the world's population doesn't even get displayed in the first place. I bet that's very true. I bet there's archives full of things. They get they get put into storage. They really do. Because like the thing is, is like the mentality that everything belongs in a museum kind of flooded the museums. That we did yeah. have in the first place. They can't They can't show everything all the time. They can't have everything out and open to the public all the time. It's publicly funded. We don't give them enough money to show everything. No, absolutely not. Plus, they always want to show the one biggest thing because that's what brings crowds and raises money. Exactly. So these little... And then I was just thinking about how crushing it would be to go far away and see something from your home and to read the fucking plaque that somebody who doesn't know you wrote the paragraph about something that's deeply valuable to you and your home and your culture. Mm-hmm. Like how yucky that must feel. How gross, right? That these these people who don't know you, who didn't grow up where you grew up, get to tell your story for you mm-hmm. at their place, in their lighting. Right. With their vocabulary. Oh, that I don't like the way that feels. It doesn't feel good. Mm-mm. I don't like it. The article ends with a really important point for all of us to remember. Indiana Jones is great. It's great to look at it as an action adventure movie. It's great to think that it's like inspired generations to come to want to go explore, want to go learn new things, want to go find new things. Certainly inspires people to go to college. Yeah. So it's it's great. And we just can't limit ourselves to thinking that the field just is this one small thing. Right? It's not. And, and I, I imagine that there's so much about it that's just learning and experiencing right the like beautiful opportunities yes to dig into culture yeah that must be wonderful it must be incredible all right i'm gonna finish this all off because in all of our indiana jones talk and even thinking of him as star wars harrison ford you're my hero (laughs) in spite of your piercing that seems like you don't really want to own it yet yeah You're still our hero. (laughs) Absolutely. And in a helicopter, no less. 
So I'm going to tell you guys about two times that Harrison Ford truly was the hero. Yes. Yes. So on July 31st, 2000, a young hiker named Sarah George went for a hike. A five-hour one that would take her up to a height of 11,106 feet at Table Rock in Wyoming. Mm. She was 20 at the time and had taken a whole group of friends with her, but sometimes, no matter how prepared you think you are, it is just not enough. The altitude combined with the heat and not enough water had Sarah to the point where she honestly couldn't move anymore and some of her friends had to go get help. Oh. Which came in the form of Harrison Ford. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Ridiculous. He lived in the area part-time and he just happened to fly a helicopter and he put that skill to use by volunteering to fly for search and rescue. Of course he did. Of course he did. Sarah said that he wasn't at all what she was expecting. She said he was wearing a t-shirt and a cowboy hat. He just didn't look like I'd ever seen him before, right? Fucking ridiculous. You just rescued me in a t-shirt and a cowboy hat. (sighs) Good night. Is he a romance novel? I think he might be. (laughs) I mean, jump to a year later and Harrison Ford does it again. Oh my gosh. Rescuing a 13-year-old boy scout named Cody who had gotten lost overnight in Yellowstone. Oh, the cuteness of that. Apparently when he found the kid, Harrison said, Boy, you must have earned a merit badge for this one. That's cute. So which the kid said, I already earned this badge last summer. <laughs> Such a 13-year-old. Yeah, so he didn't get a merit badge. But Did he know he was talking to Han Solo? I hope so. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he, he did get a hug from Harrison Ford, so he's living my dream and doing much better things than I am. Oh, my so. gosh, Elizabeth. Get a job. Oh, that goodness. is so cool. Yeah. I don't know if I want to learn how to fly anything. I don't. We live kind of close to a small airport and it doesn't happen super often, but it feels like a lot. People mm-hmm. crash onto the freeway in oh, their it's little happened planes. In my adult lifetime. Like like maybe three times mm-hmm. as adults. And that feels too many times. Entirely too many times. <laughs> but how cool. Right. My aunt used to tell a story about him rescuing somebody and then she puked in his helicopter. That was the girl. That's her. <laughs> and she was just mortified. <laughs> oh, I, I just did that. <laughs> With him in a t-shirt and a cowboy hat. <laughs> Threw up in here some Ford's helicopter. Ridiculous. <laughs> what a dream. Yeah. Oh. Well, it looks like we got carried away again. I'm not upset by it. <laughs> We're going to have to um, um, split this into two parts. So even more fun for you guys. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. It'll be excellent. So uh, come back for Winnie the Pooh, which is going to be just. Yeah. This is going to. This is going to warm our hearts. I just know it. I oh, just know best. it. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I mean, I, you think you know it. But there's more. And I'm really excited for everyone to hear. I'm so happy. It's really, really good. I'm so happy. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right, friends. Let's do this again sometime. Say hi to your mom for me. Bye.